Hello and welcome to What the Dickens podcast, episode 16, Great Expectations, chapter 15, part 2. And uh, before I continue with the chapter, I'd like to dedicate this show to Joanne Salisbury. Uh, that's at Josie Joe Show, um, who has kindly donated to um, the podcast by clicking the donate button um, in the show notes. So thanks very much, Joanne. This episode is for you. When I came down again, I found Joe and Orlick sweeping up, without any other traces of discomposure than a slit in one of Orlick's nostrils, which was neither expressive nor ornamental. A pot of beer had appeared from the Jolly Bargeman, and they were sharing it by turns in a peaceable manner. The lull had a sedative and philosophical influence on Joe, who followed me out into the road to say, as a parting observation that might do me good. On the rampage, Pip, and off the rampage, Pip. Such is life. With what absurd emotions, for we think the feelings that are very serious in a man quite comical in a boy, I found myself again going to Miss Havisham's matters little here, nor how I passed and repassed the gate many times before I could make up my mind to ring, nor how I debated whether I should go away without ringing, nor how I should undoubtedly have gone if my time had been my own to come back. Miss Sarah Pocket came to the gate. No, Estella. How then? You here again? said Miss Pocket. What do you want? When I said that I only came to see how Miss Havisham was, Sarah evidently deliberated whether or no she should send me about my business, but unwilling to hazard the responsibility, she let me in, and presently brought me the sharp message that I was to come up. Everything was unchanged, and Miss Havisham was alone. Well, said she, fixing her eyes upon me, I hope you want nothing. You'll get nothing. No, indeed, Miss Havisham, I only want you to know that I am doing very well in my apprenticeship, and am always much obliged to you. There, there, with the old restless fingers. Come now and then. Come on your birthday. Aye, she cried suddenly, turning herself and her chair towards me. You are looking round for Estella, eh? I had been looking round, in fact for Estella, and I stammered that I hoped she was well. Abroad, said Miss Havisham, educating for a lady, far out of reach, prettier than ever, admired by all who see her. Do you feel that you have lost her? There was such a malignant enjoyment in her utterance of the last words, and she broke into such a disagreeable laugh that I was at a loss what to say. She spared me the trouble of considering by dismissing me. When the gate was closed upon me by Sarah of the walnut-shell countenance, I felt more than ever 
dissatisfied with my home and with my trade and with everything, and that was all I took by that motion. As I was loitering along the high street, looking in disconsolately at the shop windows and thinking what I would buy if I were a gentleman, who should come out of the bookshop but Mr. Wopsle? Mr. Wopsle had in his hand the affecting tragedy of George Barnwell, in which he had that moment invested sixpence, with the view of heaping every word of it on the head of Pumblechook, with whom he was going to drink tea. No sooner did he see me than he appeared to consider that a special providence had put a prentice in his way to be read at, and he laid hold of me and insisted of my accompanying him to the Pumblechookian parlour. As I knew it would be miserable at home, and as the nights were dark and the way was dreary, and almost any companionship on the road was better than none, I made no great resistance. Consequently, we turned into Pumblechooks just as the street and the shops were lighting up. As I never assisted at any other representation of George Barnwell, I don't know how long it may usually take, but I know very well that it took until half-past nine o'clock that night, and that when Mr. Wopsle got into Newgate, I thought he never would go to the scaffold. He became so much slower than at any former period of his disgraceful career. I thought it a little too much that he should complain of being cut short in his flower after all, as he had not been running to seed, leaf after leaf, ever since his course began. This, however, was a mere question of length and wearsomeness. What stung me was the identification of the whole affair with my unoffending self. When Barnwell began to go wrong, I declare that I felt positively apologetic. Pumblechook's indignant stare so taxed me with it. Wopsle, too, took pains to present me in the worst light. At once ferocious and maudlin, I was made to murder my uncle with no extenuating circumstances whatever. Millwood put me down in argument on every occasion— it became sheer monomania in my master's daughter to care a button for me, and all I can say for my gasping and procrastinating conduct on the fatal morning is that it was worthy of the general feebleness of my character. Even after I was happily hanged and Wopsle had closed the book, Pumblechook sat staring at me and shaking his head and saying, "'Take warning, boy, take warning!' as if it were a well-known fact that I contemplated murdering a near relation, provided I could only induce one to have the weakness to become my benefactor. It was a very dark night when it was all over and when I set out with Mr. Wopsle on the walk home. Beyond town we found a heavy mist out, and it fell wet and thick. The turnpike lamp was a blur, quite out of the lamp's usual place, apparently, and its rays looked solid substance on the fog. We were noticing this, and saying how that the mist rose with a change of wind from a certain quarter of our marshes, when we came upon a man slouching under the lee of the turnpike house. Hello, we said, stopping. Orlick there? Uh, he answered, slouching out. I was standing by a minute on the chance of company. You are late, I remarked. Orlick not unnaturally answered. Well, and you're late. 
"'We have been,' said Mr. Wopsle, exalted with his late performance, "'we have been indulging, Mr. Orlick, in an intellectual evening.' Old Orlick growled, as if he had nothing to say about that, and we all went on together. I asked him presently whether he had been spending his half-holiday up and down town. "'Yes,' said he. "'All of it. I come in behind yourself.' I didn't see you, but I must have been pretty close behind you. By the by, the guns is going again. At the hulks, said I. Aye, there's some of the birds flown from the cages. The guns have been going since dark about. You'll hear one presently. In effect, we had not walked many yards further when the well-remembered boom came towards us, deadened by the mist, and heavily rolled away along the low grounds by the river, as if it were pursuing and threatening the fugitives. "'A good night for cutting offin,' said Orlick. "'We'd be puzzled how to bring down a jailbird on the wing tonight.' The subject was a suggestive one to me, and I thought about it in silence. Mr. Wopsle, as the ill-requited uncle of the evening's tragedy, fell to meditating aloud in his garden at Camberwell. Orlick, with his hands in his pockets, slouched heavily at my side. It was very dark, very wet, very muddy, and so we splashed along. Now and then the sound of the signal cannon broke upon us again, and again rolled sulkily along the course of the river. I kept myself to myself, and my thoughts. Mr. Wopsle died amiably at Camberwell, and exceedingly game on Bosworth Field, and in the greatest agonies at Glastonbury. Orlick sometimes growled, "'Beat it out! Beat it out, old Clem, with a clink for the stout old Clem!' I thought he had been drinking, but he was not drunk. Thus we came to the village. The way by which we approached it took us past the three jolly bargemen, which we were surprised to find, it being eleven o'clock, in a state of commotion, with the door wide open, and unwanted lights that had been hastily caught up and put down scattered about. Mr. Wopsle dropped in to ask what was the matter, surmising that a convict had been taken, but came running out in a great hurry. "'There's something wrong,' said he without stopping. "'Up at your place, Pip. Run, all!' "'What is it?' I asked, keeping up with him. So did Orlick at my side. "'I can't quite understand. The house seems to have been violently entered when Joe Gargory was out. Supposed by convicts, somebody has been attacked and hurt.' We were running too fast to admit of more being said, and we made no stop until we got into our kitchen. It was full of people. The whole village was there, or in the yard, and there was a surgeon, and there was Joe, and there were a group of women all on the floor in the midst of the kitchen. The unemployed bystanders drew back when they saw me, and so I became aware of my sister, lying without sense or movement on the bare boards where she had been knocked down by a tremendous blow on the back of the head, dealt by some unknown hand when her face was turned towards the fire. Destined never to be on the rampage again while she was the wife of Joe. Another great turn of events for Pip. I hope you enjoyed 
that chapter or the second part of that chapter. Um, and thanks once again to Joanne Salisbury for donating on my PayPal page. If you want to do that yourself, please check out the link on the show notes for this. Um, if you do want to donate, then um, what I'm doing is I'm collating everybody's information that they've donated. And when I finish the whole book, I will put that together um, into an audiobook format and you will get a free copy of that audiobook. So, um, yeah, I think, about, think about it as an investment in an audiobook for the future. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.